You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host, Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Uh, Joining us on the podcast this week is Neil Townsend. Uh, Neil is the chief market analyst at FarmLink Marketing Solutions. Uh, I had a chance to meet Neil last year at the 2019 Grain World Conference in Saskatoon. Neil and I had some great conversations at Saskatoon, and he was always at the top of my list for people that I wanted to get on to talk about the podcast, and he certainly rocketed up there as we saw all these food supply chain issues manifest as food supply chains are breaking really across the world due to the disruptions caused by COVID-19. We recorded about two weeks ago, but I think that Neil's insights in our conversation still holds a lot of value, even for understanding what's happening right now and maybe how the food supply chain is going to evolve six months down the road and even years down the road. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, I see that Joe Rogan got $100 million the past week uh, for his podcast to be bought by Spotify, so I can't claim to be as interesting as Joe Rogan, but I think that this podcast has plenty to add besides that, and we don't cost $100 million. So thanks so much for listening. Spread the word, and we will see you out there. Okay, so Neil, talk to me about food. Treat me like a dumb American and tell me from your perspective what's going on in the food supply chain in your neck of the woods in Canada and, and how Americans should be thinking about that or should be worried about that. Yeah, great question, Jacob. Like, I mean, I I think the main thing is that, you know, right from the start of the COVID-19 pandemic or when we sort of became really aware of it in, I call it mid-February or later February, uh, like the risk that, uh, you know, my team identified is is the supply chain. Because, you know, for anybody to get food at their house or in the grocery store or at a restaurant, I mean, it has to go through so many steps before it gets there. And invariably, those steps involve like human beings, either in the transportation of it or the processing of it or, you know, packaging it into smaller packages or preparing it in a restaurant. So, you know, your food gets touched a lot of times from from the time it you know starts on the farm. Right. And you you hear all this farm to table. But I mean, you know, farm to table, even in the, uh, the simplest sense, when you're just buying some carrots from a local guy or a or a sheep or something like that that's coming from a local guy, it still ends up being touched by, you know, a lot of different uh, elements to it. And and because it's so expansive to get like a meal prepared, uh, you know, there's a lot of risk to it. And, and the final thing I'll say is just, you know, one of the craziest things about the way we eat today is if you were to like sort of like Venn diagram where everything came from just for like a simple thing, like a grilled cheese sandwich or something like that, like, it's amazing how many different, uh, you know, directionalities those arrows would go off to because to prepare a simple meal in, you know, 2020 Canada or the US, I mean, the number of locations that ingredients in that meal start from is like, you know, a very, very lengthy list, right? And that goes right down to like, if you're buying something with food preservatives in it or else things like, you know, you got New Jersey has all those kind of chemicals that go into food to make them have longer shelf life. You got, you know, the, the whole entire world to source particular ingredients. And so that just makes it like, you know, the food system, like universally vulnerable to things that where human beings are incapable of doing their job at a particular time. I'm glad you said it that way. You said specifically the crazy thing about the way we eat today, because when you actually start to peel back the onion and look at the supply chain, it is kind of crazy. It doesn't feel to me at all like it's lean 
or efficient or prioritized in any meaningful sense of the world, it literally seems a little bit crazy. And I wanted to throw at you this idea that, I mean, it's obvious to me that the food supply chain has broken. When you've got farmers pouring out milk down the drain and you're burying, you know, baby chickens alive and all these other terrible stories that we're reading about, something is fundamentally broken in the chain. But I wonder, was the chain already broken? Is COVID just shining a big fat magnifying glass on inefficiencies and irrationalities that have built up in the food supply chain? Or do you think that things were actually working okay before we'll get through COVID-19 and then things will go back to that and that that system actually makes sense? How do you evaluate what COVID-19 has done to the food supply chain and what that means for, say, farm to table or, or eliminating some of those steps in that supply chain that you talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think like in terms of the way that people want to eat in sort of like a, you know, Western style democratic or sort of like, you know, the the upper 50% of the world economy, the supply chain does its job. Is it efficient? I mean, probably the the answer is no, uh, because there's way too many bottlenecks on it, right? Like, and, you know, we have one in Canada, for example, where like, you know, High River, Alberta, Cargill plant, it ends up having like one of the biggest COVID outbreaks in the entirety of Canada. I mean, they've traced almost, you know, 1500 plus cases to that plant. And I mean, there's over 900 workers at the plant had the, had COVID. You know, it accounts for over 30% of the beef that goes into the Canadian supply chain. And, you know, just saying that, you know, if something were to happen to that, regardless of whether it's COVID or if a fire or something broke out there, you know, that's going to compromise your ability to kind of get meat to the table, right? And I think that, you know, going forward, I mean, unless people fundamentally change the way they eat, and I mean, I think that the way that, you know, a lot of us eat, and you don't have to be rich to eat this way either, it's just the way a lot of us eat is by sort of like, what do I feel like? What do I crave today? And, you know, you go to the store in the middle of February in some place in Canada where it's minus 30 degrees out and you're like, I want an avocado or I want, you know, something that I want a banana, like something that's not actually should be available where you are. But, you know, our system is so reliant. And also, I mean, when people kind of get to that spot and they see, uh, oh, you know, these aren't fresh or these, they aren't available. I mean, people don't just kind of put two and two together and say, well, you know, the supply chain is so complex. How could it, you know, it, it has to have some faults in it. No, they get mad and they go like, give me a rain check. Why don't you, or they go to another store. So, and I don't know, like, will human nature change after COVID-19 where people will say like, you know, I want to eat in a more reasonable fashion because I've seen what's happened and, and, you know, that's just too much of a risk. I, I don't think so. I mean, and the other thing, Jacob, I'd say is that like one thing that's happened over time is the amount of money that, you know, the average kind of American and Canadian or European needs to spend on food to sustain themselves as a proportion of their income has gone down. Like you can you can be caloric sufficient for a relatively small portion of your your income. Right. So what, what's happened to the food system is a greater proportion of what people spend on food is sort of like discretionary. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to go to Trader Joe's and get like a $3 bottle of wine. I'm going to buy like a $40 bottle of wine. I'm not going to buy like, you know, the lowest price 
hamburger meat, I'm going to go up to a steak or I'm going to go up to a pork. And, and that's not to belittle any of the people out there who are struggling with food security, because there's a lot, lots of people in Canada, the US and the worldwide who don't have the luxury of doing that. But it's amazing how, you know, like the, the, uh, the skews that get to grocery stores are really dictated by probably the upper 50% of earners, not the lower 50% of earners, right? Because you know, that's where you can make uh, you can make more price discrimination. You can make more value added to make people pay a lot more. And one of the you know, one of the kind of crazy things about right now is how like, you know, if you just look at coffee, the commodity, it's faring pretty good with covid. But premium coffee is doing really poorly right now with covid because, you know, the outlets that sell premium coffee are are not you know as open as much as they were and so you just kind of see that it's really a, a fractionated market and, and people eat so many different things but I, I i would say on the meat packing standpoint you know and and if you ever read like the jungle by upton sinclair it's a book yeah, that's yeah. over 100 years old now and you know like he kind of that book could be written today and you just you'd have to just do like a, a small amount of kind of like you know, updating the outside aspect of the meatpacking plant, you wouldn't have to do much inside the meatpacking plant because still the people working in the meatpacking plant would be like, you know, newer Canadians, newer Americans, less English as a first language. But the, the thing is, is that one thing that's very common back then and still common today is the high degree of concentration at that level of the supply chain, right? Like there's very few companies that control a lot of the protein that we eat in terms of meat, you know, like Tyson, Cargill, JBS, these kinds of things. I'm not saying anything wrong with that, but it's just that when they start to have a problem because they're all doing like, you know, economies of scale, you start to see the system break down more than you've seen it in, in some of the other aspects of the agriculture where there is a little bit more, um, you know, uh, shall we say, competitive balance, I guess, between the, uh, the processors and, and the, uh, retail stores. Yeah. There's so much good stuff in what you just said. Uh, the Upton Sinclair stuff is dead on. And I think you could probably even argue that even the infrastructure in the United States that is used to get food from point A to point B is probably about the same when Upton Sinclair was writing, because a lot of this infrastructure just simply has not been updated. But I'm also glad you brought up coffee because Coffee, I think, is a really interesting one. It maybe allows us to to segue into grains a little bit, which I know is your sweet spot. But it seems to me that one of the problems, just in general, if you want to be, you know, in the coffee business, is that the margins are so low, and it ends up being that those big companies that you're talking about, I think, in the in the grain space, it's like the Archer's Midland, Cargill, you know, something like seventy five percent of the market is concentrated in these four suppliers or into intermediary steps. But the farmer's not actually getting the the proceeds or the benefits of the thing that they're growing or the thing that they're selling. You're getting this concentration and you're getting these companies that are in the middle that are basically trying to do things as cheap as possible. And it creates those bottlenecks that you talked about. And they're the ones that are getting all the money. Whereas for farmers, the folks who are actually putting the stuff in the ground, actually with the sweat labor, actually investing in order to get that stuff to market, they aren't even seeing the the you know most of the profit that would that should go to them anyway even if we accept that prices are going down overall so i think sort of intuitively one of the the arguments of the farm to table movement that makes sense is 
look, like get rid of the middleman. You don't necessarily need the middleman. Just have farmers be more efficient and have connections to local sources first, and then any surplus they can go sell rather than completely orienting their business around not just the, you know, the upper middle class person who wants an avocado on December 31st, uh, but also away from this idea that it's the intermediary. It's that big supplier that gets an outsized portion of the profit when actually in terms of risk, it's actually a smaller quotient than some of the other parts of the supply chain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like one thing I would say is that, you know, farmers and, and this goes for Canadian, American, Australian, European, uh, you know, Ethiopian, uh, Mozambique, South Africa, they're really good at what they do. Like they they know their land, they're stewards of the land, they're trying to grow what the market is demanding generally. And they're maximizers because in the history of farming, I think what farmers have realized, and for the most part, is that the one thing that's indisputable is just having more bushels, right? Like more mm -hmm. physical quality, because when you're physical quantity, because if you're relying on sort of like a quality market or, you know, a bespoke market, what ends up happening is like, you know, you're, you're held to a higher threshold of what does it look like? What does it feel like? What's in it? And you know, what ends up happening is all of the discounts in those markets tend to fall on the market uh, on the farmer's shoulders. So, you know, in Africa, for example, one of the things that sort of hurt food security over the last 15 years is people moving away from like traditional vegetables to, you know, uh, row crops like corn or soybeans or something like else like that, because there's more of a defined market, more of a, you know, like they can figure out the price before they plant and then, you know, uh, you know, in their own little way, they're not using like hedge management tools, but they're they're risk managing. They're saying like, ah, oh, this is what the price of corn is. It's sort of a universal price. I don't have to bargain with the middleman. I'll grow corn instead of like, you know, a local vegetable or fruit. And then, you know, more so what you say is like one of the big problems with farming is like, you know, we could all do farm to table if everybody had the time and the energy and the interest to sort of like, you know, make the meal based on the hundred mile radius where, you know, that I only want food from that, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is the bulk of people in the world are, you know, they're interested in other things more of the time than they're interested in, you know, exactly what I'm going to eat at this particular time. And so what ends up happening, and it's been in the lament of farmers for a long time, like, you know, I, I produce the wheat and then, you know, I go buy a bread, a loaf of bread for $3 and the value of the wheat in that bread is two cents because you don't pay me, you know, for my wheat. But the fact of the matter is, is like there's going to be a large percentage of the, the food that's bought and consumed in the world that sort of has a convenience factor for it. And, you know, as much as you'd like to go down to the bakery and buy the seven or eight dollar loaf of bread, there's times where, you know, you're working and you just have to like fire up some grilled cheese sandwiches for your kids and, and you just got to buy a plain old loaf of bread from the store and just, you know, fire it out. And, and again, one of the great things about, say, the food supply chain, which kind of goes unnoticed, is just how much uh, shelf life they've given to products, right? So for working people, when you buy a loaf of white bread, uh, you know, where it used to be gone, like stale by the end of the day, now you can buy a loaf of bread from the store and, 
you know, it, it's got like a week or even a week and a half of kind of, you know, tasting relatively the same. And I mean, you, people would argue, oh, too many preservatives, but you know, that is also a huge convenience factor for people. Yeah. That cuts back to that human nature question. I don't think either you or me on this podcast or anything we're going to do in our lives is going to change human nature. Um, let, let me throw another question at you, which is, and this is something that's been, I've been struggling to understand myself, because if you look at kind of the UN price index on food, um, grains are a little bit up year on year, actually, and especially wheat and rice in the last month or two have gone up quite a bit. And maybe we can talk a little bit about why that is. But generally speaking, food prices are down. I think that's counterintuitive for folks because a lot of what they're reading or listening to is, like you said, there's a plant that's shutting down, there's supply chain disruptions, everything is broken, there's all these terrible stories about what farmers are having to do with their crops or with their animals, and yet prices seem to be going down. I'm a little bit scared that you know, the, the price decline right now is, is a result of a lack of institutional, institutional demand or restaurant demand, and that the price increases are going to come about six to eight months down the road when the impact of all those things that farmers have had to do and are doing right now to get through COVID-19 becomes clear. Um, are you worried about higher food prices? Are you worried about kind of like we had that post-2008 spike in, in food prices? Are you worried about something like that? Or are you less concerned about that and see this as more of a temporary disruption sort of thing? Well, I mean, we could see, depending on how bad the supply chain gets, and I mean, again, you know, the within the meat sector, the supply chain has been definitely impacted, and, and that's bad news. And we're going to suffer as a result of that as consumers and as farmers and as the meat packers themselves. And that should probably create, you know, some inflation for meat, because at times it's going to be relatively scarcer than it normally would. Overall, I think the point that you need to understand about agriculture is history isn't static, right? Like, and farmers are remarkable at responding to incentive. And really, when we look at the story of 2020, you know, and where we are in the food supply chain and the food price system in, in you know, this 2020, it really starts with the ethanol policy in the United States, you know, around about 2003 and four. And essentially it was the greatest, I always call it the greatest transfer of wealth from urban to rural in the history of mankind. And it was the best ever policy that the United States came up with to support their rural community. But it in fact worked too good because it didn't just incentivize American farmers to be good at their jobs. And they were good at their jobs before that but to get even better at their jobs, to, to just, you know, get the yield up, to increase the yield in places where corn wasn't familiar, like, you know, uh, middle of North Dakota towards the west of North Dakota, up into Manitoba. It incentivized farmers all over the world to make improvements in the way that they produce, the way that they get. And it also put as the gold standard for everybody to reach for. The same thing I talked about earlier was just yield over everything else. Just give me more of it. And the end result is that like for the last four or five years, I've been calling it the post-ethanol era because like when the mandate was reached in about 2014 and there was no built-in kind of structure to, you know, increase the amount of corn for ethanol usage, like mandated every year by three or 400 million bushels, it was just tied now to, you know, the overall consumption of gasoline in the United States. What happened was, you know, and there's a lag in agriculture too. So like the lag of all the 
investment in the seed technology and the in the in the machinery and the technique in in the Black Sea region and Africa and everything. It's now paying off, and farmers have gotten very good at growing. And what's happened is, you know, we've just had relative abundance for the last three or four years. And if you think back to the Trump sort of, uh, you know, presidency, one of the big sort of like sideline issues that maybe it doesn't gravitate people's interest in New York City or Los Angeles, but it has been this constant battle between, you know, two sets of his friends, let's say, like the one set who's like, you know, the refiners and the oil guys, and the other ones are like his need for votes in sort of like, you know, those red states like Iowa and, and Nebraska and, and Kansas and Oklahoma, those kinds of things. And, and so, you know, you've seen this sort of battle, like, do, should we enhance the ethanol? Should we give refinery waivers and all these kinds of things? So, you know, and when we came into 2020, like, um, you know, we were looking at uh, another, you know, colossal U.S. corn crop, uh, colossal uh, soybean crop. We, we were coming off a fairly successful year in South America and, you know, uh, Ukraine, who, you know, well, if we had this conversation 15 years ago, we wouldn't have talked about Ukraine as a as a corn country. And now they mm -hmm. exported 30 million tons of corn. So, you know, when you provide an incentive, it ends up sort of distorting the market. And one thing, Jacob, you should know is there's all of the other markets in the world. And then there's the world's most distorted market, and that's agriculture. It, you know, it, I'm sure you're trained enough in economics to understand the concept of an externality. And, you know, if you remove any one externality, but you don't remove all of them, it's impossible for the mathematics that we currently have to understand what will end up happening. And there are so many thousands of externalities in, in uh, agriculture and so many like, uh, you know, there's the European Union, there's, you know, all of the farming for the government policies in the United States that like, you know, we never really know what's going to happen. But one thing that seems to have happened since the ethanol era is the farmers are reading the incentivization as this plant every available acre and maximize production. Yeah, that's fascinating. It, it makes me want to ask, because it seems to me that some of the logic, if you look at what the Trump administration has done, especially with its trade negotiations with China, was to basically open up China to um, not just to, you know, it wasn't just to manufacturing and all these other things and, and U.S. technology, but also to U.S. agricultural products, because they saw that demand in China was increasing. And they thought that if they could use their political leverage with the Chinese to open up those markets, that it would actually work. And I think the ironic thing there is that a lot of those voters that you talked about that voted for Trump, they want protectionist policies. They actually want policies like tariffs that are going to that are going to protect American industry or American farmers. Whereas the real goal of those big companies that we that we talked about is opening up that access into a Chinese market or into a market that they didn't have otherwise, so that that yield that you're talking about, the every acre, you know, the every bushel that they can go from it, that they have they actually have a buyer from it. Um, and I know that you know from a Canadian perspective, Canada's had a very different sort of relationship with China in the past couple of years than the United States because. The United States is still economically powerful enough where it can basically do whatever it wants. And China, it'll hem and haw and it'll 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 be self-righteous and it'll be offended and it'll it'll do little things, but they're not actually gonna bite the hand that feeds it. Whereas with Canada, uh China's less interested in kind of being generous. Um and I saw recently that um the Canadian government's it's walking on another tightrope here, especially with the uh, calls for an independent investigation over COVID, especially with the way that the Trump administration is pushing this theory about 
um, COVID-19 coming out of a lab in Wuhan. Um, I even saw, you know, Canada's having to think about whether they're going to give asylum to political refugees coming out of Hong Kong, which could be yet another kind of red flag there in, in Canada-China relations. So do you feel like China was the Trump administration's answer to the end of the ethanol era, or is that simplifying things too much? And how are you feeling right now about Canadian-Chinese relations as it pertains to agricultural trade versus the United States? Yeah, I mean, those are excellent questions. On the first uh, front, I'll talk about the U.S. and China. And one of the things I'd say is that I don't really see maybe uh, a nuanced understanding of agricultural markets um, in the in the say the Trump administration, right? Like, first of all, I understand that you know when you talk about agriculture in the U.S. I mean, it's such a sort of like a heavily supported segment of the population. Uh, you know, a lot of the government policies have pushed them towards monoculture, like corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans, and, you know, left farmers to really kind of not diversify, not to not to really uh, risk manage themselves, because they always think like there's going to be some some step in there. And one of the things I think about the, the you know, the trade war is like, they were kind of just looking like, what kind of things can we trade to China that, you know, China seems to use a lot of, and we have a lot of, and they said, oh, well, you know, soybeans is the most obvious one, but then corn and wheat and, you know, agricultural machinery and these kinds of things and rice and all this kind of stuff. So I, I, I sort of think like it's, you know, China does need to buy more stuff from the U.S. or to balance the trade a little bit. But the point is, is that the problem with, you know, picking corn, for example, is like, the world's second largest corn producer is China. So you're selling corn to China who produces a lot of corn. Like, you know, if you sell them wheat, I mean, one of the world's biggest producers of wheat is China. So you're selling them something they already produce a lot. And like, you know, the demographics of China are not friendly for them to be a bigger consumer 15 years from now than they are today because they're getting older and getting a smaller population. So I, I don't really see, like, I, I mean, it, there's going to be a certain element of artificiality of Chinese increasing their agricultural purchases from the U.S. And COVID's opened the door for them to do more because the Chinese in times like this, they get extremely concerned about food security. So they want to build up some buffer stocks and, mm -hmm. you know, control prices and control sort of like the stability. And there are a lot of rural uh, farmers in China. And I guess just overall, my sentiment on China, you're way more of an expert than I am. But I would say that like the Chinese Communist Party has more control uh, of urban centers than they do of sort of like the rural villages. So, you know, one of the things they want to promote is, you know, stable incomes and stable markets in those types of areas, just so that there's less sort of potential for any unrest. Now, turning to Canada and China's relations, I do also 100% agree with you. They're materially different than they are between the U.S. and China, where there is leverage on the American side. And I think there's a lot of leverage on the American side compared to the Chinese side. But in Canada, we don't have A, the political will, or B, we don't have much leverage over, over uh, China. Part of it is sort of like a psychological thing. Like, you know, we live in the shadow of the United States and the United States has elected somebody that we've identified as being the most un-Canadian person of all time, Donald Trump, <laughs> right? So we have a very antagonistic viewpoint on him. So like our media and a lot of our leaders are kind of, you know, 
they're they're at a heightened point of anti-Americanism. So maybe that makes them somewhat more um, willing to kind of overlook all the humongous warts on China. And, you know, you see a lot of coverage in the press right now, even about like the COVID-19, which, you know, as far as I can determine based on everything I've read and all the scientists, like it originated in Wuhan sometime in late November, or early December, and then thereafter spread around the world. I mean, is there somebody to blame? Not necessarily, but I'm just saying like, that just seems like reality to me. But yet, even in the Canadian press, you're starting to see this thing like, oh, maybe uh, somebody in France died like three months ago and had the COVID, you know, and, and it's sort of like, and I'm not sure where that's coming from, but I don't think that's a really legitimate news story at this time. I think it's more of a just like, it's almost like a Chinese party line that's kind of being expressed in the media here, not by directness, but sort of like indirectly, because we're trying to sort of appease China because we don't have any leverage with them. And it's been identified by the government that, boy, it would be really great to have the canola market for, uh, for uh, you know, back to where it was. Um, and, you know, we still have a woman detained for an extradition hearing in Vancouver. There's two Canadians who have been in solitary confinement for over a year in, mm -hmm. in China. And yet those stories are not really, they're not really getting much traction right now. It's more of a, a sort of like, uh, you know, you'll see a lot more coverage, obviously, of, of sort of like, you know, the shenanigans and craziness of Trump. But you won't see sort of like, you know, how how does Canada need to deal with China? And my own attitude is, and I mean, again, I, I don't want to be harsh, but I it seems to me that there's a little bit of bullying going on where it's like, you know, Canada is not important enough to China that they don't have to be delicate about the way that they express their anger or resentment uh, of what we're doing. Whereas when it comes to the United States, they talk tough and they'll dispatch sort of the, you know, the the war hawks or whatever you want to call them, like to, to make belligerent statements on Twitter. But then there's always sort of a back off. And then there's always sort of an acquiescence to kind of like, you know, meet with the USTR or do those kinds of things and actually kind of proceed. And the bottom line is like China needs the U.S. to maintain their economic well-being. And they don't really think they need Canada right now. So they're there. And that's probably true, because, I mean, overall, we're what, 35, 36 million people and, you know, a smaller economy. But I think that. I would like to see more um, cooperation and, and uh, more rule of law when it comes to, to trade. Yeah. Can you imagine kind of what U.S. media would look like if two Americans, one of whom is a former diplomat, was detained in China versus what's going on in Canada right now and the lack of publicity over that? It's been going on so long. Um, also, to your point about... Um, sort of the Chinese Communist Party having more control in the urban centers versus the rural areas, it brings to mind one of my famous old Chinese proverbs or quotes or whatever you want to call it, which is that the hills are high, but the emperor is far away. Um, so I think you're exactly right that they're able to exert more direct control in some of those areas that are closer to their power bases. But when you get out into the countryside, it's not only a lack of control, it's sometimes a lack of awareness of what's going on there. I think that's one of the reasons China is pushing data and connectivity and artificial intelligence and surveillance, all of that is about trying to gather more information on what's going on in the countryside so that they can control things. Um, but I, I want to hit a little bit on what you were talking. Well, and, and also just a third point before I ask you another question, which is that um, it's not just in, it's not just that China has evaluated. I think that it, um, that Canada doesn't, doesn't have any leverage in that bilateral relationship. It is also fundamentally good for China if there is a break between Canada and the United States. 
and the way that the United States has chosen to pursue its national interests under the Trump administration creates a break there that China can then exacerbate. Because like you said, because the Trump administration is putting America first and is not thinking of some of its closest allies in its trade war and in its negotiations with China, all China really has to do is say, Canada, we don't really want to trade this thing with you right now because we don't like this thing you did. And suddenly there's a problem between the U.S. and Canada, exactly as you said, because Canada looks at the U.S. and says, well, you're doing all this other stuff. Why can't you help us out? And the U.S. is saying, eh, it's not our problem. Why don't you fix your own problems? And then the whole thing kind of spins off. Um, but to go back to I, something- Well, one, one thing no, I would ahead. say, Jake, Jacob, just sorry, is like, you know, uh, I, I'm, I mean, clearly like the best friend Canada's ever had is the U.S. and the best friend that the U.S. has ever had, it's, you know, either Britain or Canada, one of the two, right? But on agriculture- is the one area where, you know, Canada and U.S. relations or the U.S. and Europe or like, like it's, it's a, an extremely uh, tense, uh, acrimonious thing. You know what I mean? And I, everybody wants to protect their farmers. And again, it's, it's something that, you know, like if you were to walk around Brooklyn and say like, hey, you know, like, what do you think of a farmer? You know, most people in Brooklyn would have like a super good image of a farmer. It'd be like, you know, a guy with a goat uh, practicing yoga out in a, in a nice little part in up, or upstate New York. You know, if you were then to show and and then if you said like, hey, should we support farmers with with money? They'd be like, oh, you know, of course we should. Then if you show them a picture of like a giant combine with like a 30 foot head on it and, you know, uh, like combining a giant field that's going, you know, off to the horizon. Oh, should we support this guy? Then they're going to say sort of no, but the American farm lobby has done a remarkable job, just like the Canadian farm lobby has done a remarkable job to kind of, you know, really promote self-interest. And the end result of that is most farm groups around the world have done that. The end result is that, you know, two countries could have a fantastic relationship on all aspects, but be in a bitter kind of standoff when it comes to agricultural policy. I think some of that has to do, though, with, with the emphasis on exports and on competition in markets that are abroad and the way that the supply chain and the entire market in general has reoriented around exports. If you had it more that selling into your own local market could make the money for the farmer that they needed, and then anything on top of that was surplus and profit that you know went to the farmer on top of that, and that the competition wasn't so existential, things might be better. But it's that, it's that zero-sum like you said, produce as much as possible, get that price down as low as possible, all about convenience, forget about quality. It's just about making sure they have that avocado when they go into the store. I think in some sense, it's that system that is creating those disjunctures because it creates a system in which everybody is competing at a lower market rather than everybody is trying to satisfy their local community's needs and then you know, kind of going outward, which would be the sort of the natural way I would think about food based on its perishability and the effort that you have to go into producing it and all those other things. But maybe I'm just being naive and hopeful there. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, like one thing is, you know, if you believe in Ricardian economics and people sort of like specializing in what they do best and then trading that with a country that does something else that they do best. One of the problems is, is that, you know, when it comes to agriculture, like you you soon you you lose your uh, your um, uh, neutrality on that. You're like, oh no, we should we should definitely produce some of that ourselves. And like, I think a lot of times, you know, the Americans get a sort of a bad rap about like, oh well, why do they produce so much? Well, part of it is they produce so much because they have a tremendous comparative advantage. I mean, you know, God or Mother Nature, whatever you want to call them, has blessed them with like you know abundant great soils. 
you know, more navigable rivers than anybody else has and, you know, consistent rainfall in places like Illinois and Iowa and things like that. Like they can produce a lot of corn and they can produce a lot of soybeans and a lot of wheat. And even with 350 million people, they end up with a gigantic surplus of all three of those things. Mm-hmm. Other countries, you know, like sometimes they're producing you know, relatively inefficiently, if you look at how much seed they have to apply and how much uh, chemical and how much fertilizer they have to use to produce the same, like not even the same yield, close to the same yield that the U.S. does, like in a lot of ways, they should be like, oh, you know what, we should be doing something else on this land and just import the extra corn from the United States. And, and you know, there should be no corn in F- used in uh in gasoline because that's an inefficient use of corn. I mean, a better use of it would be to, you know, fatten up animals or or to do other like things because, you know, we don't have a shortage of gasoline obviously right now or crude oil or whatever. And uh, and so I, I'm just saying like, I mean, you know, I, it's not a pick on the United States type of thing for me being a Canadian. It's just that like, there's a lot of distortion in the world. And the end result is that, you know, there are definitely places I like I could pick on Australia a little bit and say, like, you know, they dedicate a large amount of their land mass to agriculture and it, it you know, their yield per hectare or per acre is quite a bit lower than what you're getting in, uh, you know, Canada or the United States or the European Union. Yet, you know, they're going to plant basically every available acre every year that they can. And nobody really needs much of what they produce. Because, you know, it's easily serviced by the rest of us, but, you know, they're going to continue to do that. And that's controversial. The Australians won't like that, but it's true. Well, it's okay. Nobody cares what the Australians like. Um, (laughs) JK, y'all. No, but it's funny because I I was having to do research on a separate project earlier this morning about the Netherlands. And I guess I should have known this already, but I, I, I didn't for whatever reason. Uh, the Netherlands is something like the second the second largest agricultural exporter in the entire world just because they've been able to so optimize the technology that they use, the techniques that they're using, that they're just growing things out the wazoo. And it, it kind of raised the question for me that, look, if the Dutch can can grow as much as they're growing, why can't every country in the world just figure out how to do this for themselves and generate some level of self-sufficiency and then go forward from there. To your point, it's one thing to have Ricardian economics or free trade or all these other things with, you know, manufactured goods or clothes. But I can't eat my iPhone for dinner. I can't, you know, pull out my, um, you know, my my, my MacBook Air and, and carve it up in a time of need because it's going to make a good quesadilla. So, like, th- there's some disjuncture there where economics has gotten so ethereal and so abstract. That, that it doesn't actually connect, that we can't live without the food, that there has to be some kind of different treatment from a policy perspective about the thing that is crucial to survival. Because to your point, it's not just about human nature in the store. It's also about countries are going to move towards food sovereignty. They're going to move towards food security. Mm-hmm. If you get to a point where a country is feeling threatened, like a China is right now, yeah, they might buy some stuff now. They'll buy your soybeans for now. But you can guarantee they're going into labs and trying to figure out how they don't need to do that. And it's just going to decouple and overthrow the system anyway. So um, I, well, I don't you know. One know thing that was interesting when I was out uh, earlier this year, like pre-COVID, and I was giving, you know, at, at that time, say like January and very early February, uh, you know, when you looked at agriculture, it goes back to some of the things you've said earlier on is what I saw was like, you know, abundance and the the phraseology that we used was lower for longer. Right. But mm-hmm. one of the sort of notes that came out and I, I kind of said, boy, this was, you know, how wrong I was. I said, you know, one of the, the 
you know, most threatening things that have emerged from China in 2020. And it was news that the Chinese government had approved like two GMOs for soybeans and one GMO for corn. Mm. And one of the things about GMOs is like when there is adoption of GMOs, like genetically modified organisms, it sounds scary name. I mean, it's the, one of the worst names ever to just, uh, you know, uh, sort of promote a product because it does sound like some sort of like Hollywood movie that's going to get you like GMO nine. But anyways, <laughs> like, like the thing is, is that one of the things that happens is, you know, yields will go up, drought tolerance will go up. And I mean, you know, China is definitely taking the steps because of their worldview. Ultimately, they would like to be 100% food secure and self-sufficient and not rely on anything. Now, the final distinction to make, and this is sort of like hovered over a lot of the conversation that we're having, is that there's a differential between a commodity and an ingredient. And most of the farmers that we have in Canada and the U.S., like the farmers that need the supports or they need like the, the associations to kind of, you know, promote their interest to the government or to lobby, they're commodity farmers. They're growing something that's interchangeable around the world. I mean, there's not much of a, a branding exercise to say like, oh, you know, this is a Iowa, Iowa corn, you know, it's going to be better than some corn you found in Ukraine, right? And ultimately, when I've talked to farmers about sort of like, income security or kind of like you know longer term planning for their their operations i've always said you know a proportion of your farm should go into finding an ingredient that is more you know like people are willing to pay a value added figure to it because it's it's essential to what you know like it has to come from this place and that's one of the things that farm to table was starting to be relatively successful say on the east coast or in california or in texas places like that where you know, you started to brand your beef or your hogs or even, you know, like some malting barley for a beer or something like that, where it was like, or a hop, like, you know, the location mattered to the person who was buying it and ultimately to the consumer. And he was willing to say, or she was willing to say like, you know, I'm going to eat this steak because it comes from, you know, Piney Bluff Farms just up the road from New York City. And I'm willing to pay, you know, a 30% premium per you know, pound on this, this steak because it's, it's local. Right. And, and that's sort of converting it from, you know, a commodity to an ingredient. And then, you know, there's other things as well, where you, you can go even further down the path and, and create a product that, you know, becomes ultimately like uh, an ingredient. And like, you know, for example, if you want to sell oat milk, you can't have, you have to have oats in the oat milk, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just just anecdotally, I mean, I'm down here in Austin, Texas, which um, you know, a lot of lot of restaurants, a lot of farm to table action here, and just anecdotally, at least before COVID nineteen, I mean, there was such a proliferation of folks trying to source things locally, uh, trying to source ingredients locally, like you're talking about about restaurants for whom their entire identity was built on sourcing from farmers locally and getting that farm to table sort of thing, and I. I worry going forward what's going to happen to those places. A lot of them have gotten into this, okay, well, so now they're doing delivery or they're creating things that you make at home and the supply chain is slowly beginning to reorient itself. But I, I just I can't see enough far enough into the future to decide if that is going to be a definitive trend and you're going to see more of that sort of thing. Or if the fact that the economy is doing so bad and people are so unemployed that people aren't just going to be able to afford that value add that they would have been willing to pay for before but, you know, sort of the economic wreckage of this whole crisis is going to undermine what was already that process that you're talking about. Well, and, you know, that's a great question, because, I mean, you know, again, like it just shows you how you can be wrong uh, retrospectively uh, 
based, you know, when I was out in January and February, and of course, like talking to like large groups of farmers in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and my message was, you know, it's going to be a tough struggle because lower for longer people are producing this all over the world. And, you know, uh, farmers would come up to me afterwards and say like, you know, what should I do? And my suggestion was always like, you know, if there was a young person involved in the farm, I said, well, maybe, you know, why don't you farming, uh, 7,000 acres. Why don't you have your young son here? Who's just coming into the thing. Why don't you give him like, you know, 30 acres and tell him to produce something that has a local demand for it, you know, and build mm -hmm. that thing out for the restaurant. And then lo and behold, along comes COVID-19 sort of like Murphy's law and just like destroys that. The one thing I would say, and this is one of those, you know, uniquely human kind of traits is that like, you know, in the midst of anything, we're, we we forget what came before and we forget the uniqueness of any particular time and we're sort of vain that we think like oh yeah this is an extraordinary event and i i think like you know even talking to my children i've said look i never went through a covid 19 situation so yeah obviously it's worthy of kind of being labeled a black swan or something like that but ultimately the question will be and you you would you know you uh, illuminated this like one how long does it take us to get back to sort of closer to where we were prior to this? And secondly, how much money is burning a hole in people's pockets at that time that they want to spend on, on food consumption? And if, if it's, if they have less money, then they're going to go for things like craft dinner, as opposed to go out for dinner, right? And if they have less money, they're going to, you know, take the steak that's offered to them as opposed to like, make sure it came from Piney Bluff Farms and, you know, was aged for two years and marbled just exactly the way they wanted it. So, you know, time will tell, but ultimately, you know, the more sort of uh, better off people feel uh, and the more they want to, um, you know, post an Instagram picture of something that they're eating and get that sort of like validation that they're, you know, a really good soldier for uh, the environment and for the little guy. I mean, uh, you know, that that will be really uh, a mark that we're back to sort of like the pre-COVID-19 era. And I'd like to think myself that, you know, the COVID-19 era, like when you and I reconvene like 10, 15 years from now, we will talk about that as the exception and not the rule of how of how, you know, economies and people operate, right? And I'm not just talking about the social distancing, but I'm talking about sort of like, you know, maybe people contemplating some bigger existential questions and, you know, uh, like not, not maybe having as much time to kind of, uh, you know, navel gaze as they usually do on, on things that are, you know, important to them and, but relatively trivial in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the word black swan. I just finished writing a column um... That, that sort of talked about how whether COVID-19 is a black swan or not. And one of the requirements for, a, for in the definition of a black swan is that something was retrospectively predictable. And you can actually go and you can find scientific journal articles from 2010, 2011 that are saying the incidence of pandemics is, gonna, is going up. There's a lot more disease jumping from animals to humans. And here are the hot spots in the world where you need to worry about it. And of course, Wuhan is in kind of the heat maps of the charts. Yeah. So it's that perfect thing where we all should have known that a pandemic was coming and we didn't. I would say that going forward, any future pandemic is not a black swan because these things are going to happen more often. And it's not just pandemics. I think you have to think about pandemics. You have to think about potential disruptions due to climate change, which is sort of the, the heavyweight. If, if, um, if COVID-19 is kind of the light welterweight 
know, climate change is the heavyweight that is waiting in the wings. We don't even know what kind of punches it's dreaming up. And then there's also how that's all going to intersect. 100%. With, 100%. Yeah. I agree and, with that so much. Yeah. And how that's going to intersect with you know, geo, geopolitical competition and conversations about food sovereignty and security, um, a whole mess. Find us on every major streaming platform under the name Perch Pod. Follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perch2020, or you can find us on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. You can also check out our website. That's perchperspectives.com. Take good care, and we'll see you out there.